You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. It's time for another digital noise. Joining me is Sir John Gulson. Hello. John Gulson of the Clan Gulson. I was knighted. Because <laughs> all that it takes to knight someone is another knight. Yeah, that's true. According to Game of Thrones, yeah. anyway. And in the Phil Collins song, One More Night. Well, they're all... <laughs> One more night. There you go. Give me just, it's because he wanted to be Sir Phil Collins and he needed another knight. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. It all makes sense now. But isn't there like six degrees of separation like that? If like, if I, like through six different people, if I know someone who's a knight, can't I knight someone? Hmm. Maybe. I, I say yes. I, I dubbed thee Sir John Golson. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just a duke. It's fine. Now I get called to kill dragons like jury duty. <laughs> oh, I know where you get the letter in the mail. Like, oh, shit. Oh, What's wrong, man. honey? I have to defend the kingdom. <laughs> I should have looked in. Where are my shoes? I should have read the fine print before I said yes to this whole knighting thing. We are here to talk about the some of the latest Blu-rays and DVDs that have come out this month. Um, uh, I have, uh, one bit of announcement to make, and that is that subscribers, we desperately need you. We've actually lost some subscribers this month, and that really, really sucks, because I barely get by every month, and I have to spend a bunch of money on this site as well. It's not cheap to run. We need new subscribers. We need old subscribers to come back on and resubscribe. We need subscribers at a lower level to go to a higher level. All those things are what keep this site going. Really, there are some months I consider throwing the whole thing out the window and stop stopping doing it because I'm like, I have to scrap for every penny. I have to make a lot of money on the side, which is not easy to do when you have to watch this amount of movies. And when you listen to any given digital noise, you'll go, Jesus Christ, you do watch a lot of movies. Um which is not always joyous, as I think you'll find on this episode <laughs> of Digital Noise. <laughs> but, um, yeah, think about being a subscriber. There's a $2, $5, $10, and $25 level. Uh, they come with lots of bonuses, lots of cool stuff. We added a bunch of videos recently, even to the $25 level, that are pretty amazing from the old League of Extremely Ordinary Gentlemen era that's on that was on uh, Spill.com. Uh, of course, there's The Gathering, which is our now tri-weekly uh, uh, gathering gaggle of uh, drunken people on the site, and The Breakfast Pub, and much more. So please think about becoming a subscriber. John, what have you been up to? Oh, gosh. Uh, it's been a lot of work transitions in my professional career. Um, I, I did go to Six Flags. Oh, I saw that. What was that? That was yeah. your first time too. Right? That was my first time to Six Flags Arlington. I was an Astroworld kid. I grew up in the Houston area, and we had uh, season passes for like probably four or five years of my of my childhood. Uh, this is my first time in Arlington. It was fun. It was fun to take a kid and see it through other people's eyes. I have. It's weird. So I went online to buy a ticket, and the first available tickets online were like three days from the time I was looking at the thing. So I thought I'll just go and buy a ticket. So I waited in line. I got to the front counter. I went to buy a ticket, and they were like, adults can only buy tickets online. What? And I was like, excuse me? Adults can only buy tickets online. 
And I was like, I can't buy a ticket here. He goes, no, adults can only buy tickets online. That's bizarre. I said, so what am I supposed to do? Get back in my car, drive to Austin, get my laptop, buy a ticket, then come back up here? And then somebody that worked there heard me and was like, oh, you have to go to the membership office. And I'm like, to buy a one-day pass, you have to go to the membership office. And I went, okay. So I go get in line at the membership office. There's one register. The guy that work, that's working it is new. I heard this from <laughs> other employees. We waited about an hour and 45 minutes to buy a ticket oh to the park. God. It's like, don't you want our money? Yeah. <laughs> By the time, from the time we arrived to the time we were actually physically in the park was two hours. Oh my it God. was, it was, it was crazy for a day that wasn't particularly busy. But again, their, their ticketing was completely borked and I, my legs suck. So it was hard for me because I have kind of a limited time of which I, I can walk around without like a lot of pain. Right. And I was already, I mean, I burned through two hours of that. Uh, and you know, typically I've got about a good four to five hours. So it, it really reduced, it really reduced the day overall. And I don't, I couldn't understand why Six Flags just didn't sell tickets like a normal place. Why would that be hard to do? I don't know why they just didn't sell tickets. It's because everything is geared towards you buying a season pass and then upgrading that season pass amongst these membership tiers. They're not designed anymore for you to walk up and get a ticket. Everything is built around uh, around the season pass thing. Yeah, that makes so. sense, I guess. But still, you're like, what about people who are visiting from out of town, which are many, yeah. I would imagine. And the membership stuff is stupid, too, because it's like you get like meal plans and things like that. And I'm like, you guys aren't Disney World. Like, you literally mm-hmm. sell churros and pretzels, and that's it. And like, their food sucks. Yeah. I mean, it makes Disney food look good by yeah. comparison. It was, it, you don't have the options to be able to, you don't have the options to be able to position yourself as a premier theme park destination with different membership tiers and meal plans and shit. You're right. not Disney World. Like you just aren't. Yeah. You and that to- was the that was the biggest takeaway was I felt like they're what they wanted to present themselves as and what they actually were were like two different things. And I felt like when I was a kid it was very simple. It was a, it was six flags, buy your ticket, go ride the rides. This rigmarole about like become a platinum member today was like <laughs> why? Yeah. Why? I went there for the first time this past October, so we got to do the the, the horror nights thing, oh, cool. which was actually reasonably good. I yeah. mean, it was about as good as Universal's. It was about yeah. at the same level. Um, but yeah, there's a feeling about the whole park that like you guys feel like you're ten years away from closing down. There's just something where everything is starting, like the paint is starting to peel. No one. There seems like there's no sense of like communication between the people who work there to ha- like on attitude control. Everybody yeah. clearly doesn't want to be there and isn't afraid to let you know. There's a lot of little weird things too. Like, so you have a part of the park that's dedicated to being like a fake Gotham City, mm-hmm. and I'm like, why is this not more Disney-like in regards to how come there aren't Gotham City cops walking yeah. around, or how come the Riddler's not over by the Riddler ride, right. or the Joker's not hanging out by the Joker ride? Those kind of like photo oppy kind of right moments. I couldn't figure why there wasn't more um, small attraction stuff. That to me, it's like I get that roller coasters cost like millions of dollars, but what doesn't cost millions of dollars? 
is putting a guy in a penguin costume and making him hang out in the Gotham City section of Six Flags. I still think in within ten years they're going to announce a Disney Texas. I still really do because it's like that one big spot right in the middle of the country. There's no Disney anywhere near it, and yeah. lots of available space and super warm weather. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they've come down here looking before. Yeah, I'm just saying. All right, there's a lot of space when you start getting like like about fifty miles east of Austin. There's a lot of nothing. Well, I had a good time. I don't want to say I don't want to seem like I didn't have a good time, but I scratched my head about a lot of it. So yeah, yeah, I'm there with you. Roller coasters are tight there, though. I'll give them that. Yeah, I mean, like the one thing that Six Flags has Disney beat on is their roller coasters pretty much kicked ass. Yeah, like the big old the the two huge ones there. Mm -hmm. You know, man, those were. Like, you know, big old wooden coasters. and the Texas Giants. Yeah, yeah, those were good roller coasters. It's like, man, this is like the when I was a kid roller coasters. Because yeah. now they're all, like, over in eight seconds. Like, the metal ones that just do, look, it twists around and flips and sends you into another dimension for half a second. But then it's over. Yeah. The, the big old ones, you're like, this is like a five-minute ride. I love this shit. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. We're supposed to be talking about digital noise, about movies. And we're going to start off by talking... All right, well, did you see Hellboy? I... I did not see the new Hellboy. You did not see the new... Okay, no. it's not good, just as have, has been That's reported. what I heard, and I didn't make time for it. Well, uh, for those of you who are like, damn it, I just wanted to see more Ron Perlman and those characters as those as them in the Guillermo del Toro films, they did, in fact, put out two animated movies with Hellboy, Blood and Iron and Sword of Storms. And uh, these came out a little while back... But uh, I think at least one of them was, like, largely completely unavailable. Well, now they've put the both of them out in one set with a whole slew of new of bonus features, because previously there were none on either one, either uh, previous Blu-ray release. So this is in 4K. These are both based on uh, storylines from the comics. Blood and Iron is based on the Wake the Devil uh, storyline. And I am blanking what sort of storms I forget. I used to know. Because I just read a shit ton of Hellboy right before I went to go see the movie. But um, these are like relatively low-budget animated films, but they are voiced by, on the whole, the characters, yeah. with the difference being that um, the character of uh, Abe Sapien is voiced by Doug Jones, who, in fact, did do the physical work in the movies. He just didn't do the voice. He did the second one. I'm sorry? He did the second one. Did he, he did Golden the, Army. Did he? I, he did the voice? In yeah, the- David Hyde Pierce is only the first one, and Doug Jones got to voice the character when they did the second one. I did not realize that. I so. did read a thing where uh, David Hyde Pierce had said, Doug Jones is so good, I have no idea why they didn't just let him do it. You yeah. know? Well, gosh, I remember the old uh, Fantastic Force Rise of the Silver Surfer trailer where it was Doug Jones' voice instead of Larry Fishburne's voice. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Where he... he uh, your your entire world is doomed, or whatever was like the line that he gave, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And then later on, it was, "Your entire world is doomed," and I was like, "Oh, that's not him. Like, that's <laughs> a complete. That's Larry Fishburne." Like, um, I think now with uh, him being such a great character on Star Trek Discovery, really mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about the show is him and him actually getting to voice that character. I'm feeling Doug won't be stuck just doing the body movements for characters yeah. anymore. Cause uh, he's proven he is a very good, like a uh, voice actor as well as a physical one. But yes, he plays Abe Sapien here. Some of Blair's Liz Sherman, Ron Perlman is Hellboy. Um, it's not that these are bad per se. They are okay. There's something about them that feels of a particular time that the, where the animation, the designs of the characters 
I would have preferred something if it was going to be animated to look like the Hellboy comics with movement, where it actually, you know, it's very much like of the style, stark, you know, stark shadows. Um, yeah, and it, and then having it look like one of those comics in motion versus what this is, which is kind of that like. It reminded me of like Extreme Ghostbusters or the Men in Black cartoon. Like it kind of has that look where people people's heads are shaped weird and they have like big blank eyes. It's um, and it's not that it's not like that. The voice cast is good. Um, the writing isn't bad. One of the stories is sort of a Japanese yeah sort of uh, ghost story, and then one of the stories is more. Has a little bit more folklore touches, but is ultimately sort of a vampire story. Right. Um, which, which is, those elements uh, were also in the new Hellboy movie. Like, elements of that, of, of uh, what is it, Blood and Iron, you could see pop up yeah. here and there in the new in the new movie. They clearly were borrowing from that same run, which is, I guess, the, is considered to be one of the better runs of the book. But Ultimately, I found these just kind of dull. Yeah. Something about the way that they execute action and story beats and things like that that has a flatness to it, uh, where it's like it's not even. I don't even know that it's necessarily the fault of the writing on the page. It feels like a budgetary thing. Mm-hmm. It's like the the scope of animation required would have needed to be much uh, richer and more engaging than this kind of like flat Saturday morning sort of. Style. Nothing ever feels like it really builds to anything. The scenes mm. just kind of like everything kind of feels the same. Like a dialogue scene sort of feels the same as an action scene, and it just kind of like has the same vibe. Uh, it, it definitely has more of a vibe of like you said Saturday morning television than it does of like a DC animated universe production. You know, yeah, where you're like this feels like a standalone thing, and these don't. Yeah, I mean, other than they 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 were released that way so they can cuss and stuff if they want to. Yeah, um, I mean, it's nice hearing the one thing I'll always say because I'm not the world's biggest Hellboy guy. I like the comic, I don't mm. love it. I like the movies, I don't love them. But the one thing I'll say is I thought Perlman was dead on the right choice, and it is kind of nice after seeing that totally horrendous new movie <laughs> to see Perlman returning to being in the part again. But and if they decided to do, spend more money on it, I would welcome another animated uh, chapter. Like, I think I'm with you. They're okay. Maybe if I loved Hellboy a lot, I would like these more. But as it is, yeah. I'm just, eh. The package has a, a Blu-ray disc with both movies on it and a 4K disc with both movies on it. Mm-hmm. I had actually started watching uh, Sword, of, uh, Sword of Storms um, on a streaming service. They had it for free. And I was like, I can get ahead of this and go ahead and start watching it. Then when I put in the Blu-ray, there was a significant difference in regards to like the quality. So if you've seen this and you're already a fan, you know you already like the Hellboy animated movies, this is the best possible version of those. It looks... It, it does... The animation is not particularly good, but in regards to the presentation, like it's crisp and clean. So, and like I said, there's bonus features on here that haven't existed in any in the previous iterations whatsoever. They made specifically for this, like making ofs, introductions by Mike Magnolia, an audio commentary on Blood and Iron with Magnolia, uh, Tad Stones, and Vic Cook. Uh, there's a uh, a new breed creating the new uh, Hellboy, which leads to basically the the ideas of moving on from those movies to these animated films and what they were considering that looking at all the actors are in it um yeah what have you uh this is okay once again i'm gonna just go with okay but uh if you're one of those people who think i'm totally wrong feel free to tell me (laughs) uh here's another movie that i'm kind of baffled that some people like as much as they do and that is uh the movie glass which is i guess Unbreakable 3, technically? 
in split a sense. Two, split two. Split two, colon, Unbreakable three. That's the, <laughs> yeah, that's the movie. M. Night Shyamalan continuing to try and like win back our love. And I, for me, failing repeatedly. I had heard such bad things about this that I expected this to be truly awful. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know if it's truly awful. It's not good. It, I, I don't know how much of it can be discussed without talking about spoilers, so I'll, I'll kind of leave it like this. It, well, let me, let, let me synopsize it first, sure. which is that uh, if, you've, if you've seen Unbreakable, you know that Bruce Willis is uh, super tough, super strong. Um, he is tracking down the uh, killer from Split, the Split personality uh, guy with the demon James inside McAvoy. Him, played by James McAvoy. Um, uh, those two characters do have their confrontation relatively early in the movie and are arrested and brought to this uh, mental fa- uh, mental health facility where Glass, the villain from Unbreakable, played by Samuel Jackson, is in there. And there's a psychiatrist played by, is it Paulson? Yeah, Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson, um, who is trying to convince the three of them that they're all all three delusional. Yeah. Um, I specialize in people who think they, they have superpowers. I'm like... Do you get a lot of work? <laughs> this movie feels like it was written backwards. Like the twist was an idea that Shyamalan had. Because like his other stuff, it falls into this idea of, oh, I've got to have a twist at the end. Right. Which is sort of like his class. I feel like his last couple movies, because Split doesn't really have a twist. It has that reveal in the diner, but that's not necessarily like a twist. No, no. That's like the, yeah, that's like an Easter egg at the end of a Marvel film. Yeah. yeah. I feel like with this, he's very much like, oh, people want the old Shyamalan and cracks his knuckles and is like, all right, this is going to have a big twist ending. It feels like it's written backwards from the twist because the twist is a good idea, but the twist is a strong enough narrative idea that the twist should have been the whole movie. Yeah. The narrative of the film should have been about what that twist is about instead of it being... You're you're kind of watching this. It has no real momentum. No, they should have dropped it in the first act. No, because, real, yeah, you, you should have known right away. This is what this is. This these are the stakes. This is why this is happening. And then I'm invested because I'm like, oh, are they going to um, present themselves to the world? Like, will the world find out about these superheroes? Like, yeah. And and I and I I somehow managed to talk about this without actually spoiling anything. But that saving all of that narrative meat yeah. for the end of the meal and then roll credits, I was like, "What? Why isn't that the movie?" But I and I went also went. This is the. I feel like M Night has not actually been online in years. Like watching this because I'm like, <laughs> how do you imagine that this is a super genius's evil plan and totally undefeatable after this? I'm like, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if M. Night has stayed off the internet for quite some time because it ha- very rarely has anything nice to say about him for like a decade now. Yeah. But I was just laughing. I was like, come on, man. Really? <laughs> I did not enjoy the moments where people would fight and then explain what they were doing in the context of a comic book. Yeah. Like if yes, somebody either. was thrown against a wall, they would be like, this is the moment in which the villain has the upper hand against the hero. And right. I was like, why are they play by play? Like, why are these characters announcing this stuff play by play style? I thought that was the only thing that was like completely like hokey trash. Right. The rest of the movie is just kind of dull. Like it's it's just not it's much well happens. acted and nothing really happens yeah. and uh, until like the last 
15 minutes of it. One thing I'll give it that I did really enjoy, and it's James McAvoy, who has been given full license to to take his split character and go considerably wilder with it. Mm -hmm. And he is genuinely a treat to watch in this movie. But in not the sense that you buy what's happening, so much as that he's really fun to watch, going back and forth between these even more personalities that he has now. Yeah. Like, I, I was genu- genuinely laughing with and at the movie sometimes with as regards to him. I do think this movie is, is watchable. It just, like you said, there's just so many miscalculations on the writing level yeah. of this thing that you're oh. like... I, and the whole another one is his victim, like the relationship with Joy him and his victim made was no like, sense. This doesn't ring true in any way whatsoever. No, it does not. No. I I was baffled. Like, okay, so I tend to use a, a site that I do really recommend, Blu-ray dot com, to get information about, uh, so I can look quickly down the list of what the bonus features are to remind myself of what was in each one. Uh, they're they're one of the better sites with giving you all the information that you you want to know on details like that. Uh, and the guy who's reviewing it for it just loved the shit out of this movie. I was like, where did they find you, man? <laughs> I just don't understand. But there is a alternate opening with an optional M. Night uh, introduction. There's 25 minutes of deleted scenes with uh, optional M. Night introductions. There's uh, about nine minutes of uh, brief character portraits about all the main characters. Uh, there's a conversation with, with uh, James McAvoy and M. Night. Uh, there's uh, bringing the team back together, which... Uh, Basically, just look like with all the crew that have worked on a bunch of Shyamalan films together. There's David Dunn versus the Beast, which is uh, basically talking about how they did the action while not having much money to spend. Which, to be honest, you can completely tell watching the movie that there was not much of a budget here. There's Glass Decoded, which Shyamalan talks about uh, some of the callbacks of props that appear in this film. There's Breaking Glass, the stunts, self-explanatory. Uh, there's Connecting the Glass Universe, which is focuses on how all the films fit together. There's M. Night Shyamalan Behind the Lens, which cast and crew talking about his direction of the film. There's The Sound of Glass with the composer, uh, West Dylan Thordson. There's Enhancing the Spectacle, which looks at the key digital effects. There's Raven Hill Memorial, which was basically they shot at a real abandoned mental hospital, and it takes a look at the real place there. Man, how many abandoned mental hospitals are there in the world? It seems like thousands, they're all in Pennsylvania. Are they? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And there's Night Vision, a look at how Shyamalan sees and builds a film from the beginning. Although, once again, I have to agree with you. I suspect he builds them from the end. Yeah. (laughs) Almost every time. I wish this was better. I really wanted this to be good, because Unbreakable is just one of those movies I adore, and it was the last movie, I think, Shyamalan made that I genuinely liked. Because um, right off the bat, even with Signs, I know people defend it, but I, that movie's got a plot hole big enough to drive a, like, like a Mack truck through. Um, I'm lukewarm on Signs, kind of generally. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say it very often because so many people love Signs. I never will figure but I'm it very, out. But I'm very lukewarm on Signs. I mean, it, it's, not the, it's not even the big plot contrivance. It's just the movie itself. I'm just sort of like, whatever. And I'm not, you know, uh, even the, the theme, which is a man fighting, like, to regain his faith. This isn't a theme I identify with. And I like, I go, okay, I'm not a person of faith. I never have been. And so this means very little to me. And I realize that that's a thing that means more to a lot of other people out there. But mm-hmm. at the same time, 
Fucking, how could your aliens be allergic, to, deathly allergic to water and come here and walk around naked? That is the dumbest. They would melt the moment they went into our atmosphere. Like, they would just melt. Yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense. Anyway, uh, next up is a much smaller film called Black Sight. This is a very low-budget science fiction oh. attempting to be John Carpenter-esque, but only succeeded in the way that you can tell they're trying to be John Carpenter-esque <laughs> uh, film. It's an idea that feels like a bunch of stone college students came up with who were like reading a bunch of old Robert Howard and, and, <laughs> and what have you, which is, let's say Cthulhu and all those monsters are real, the elder ones, and a long time ago they all got banished, but now they're finding ways to come back, but we're ready for it, and we have like a whole... Border Patrol. Yeah, a Black Ops Border Patrol that basically takes these guys and, and, and when they find them, sends them back to the other dimension where they can never come back from. And so it's basically they found one of the biggest of the bads. That's it, like, And they the only way they can exist here is inside the body of humans. And they've got it trapped and they're preparing to send it back. Otherwise, they, they don't just send it back immediately. I never was entirely clear on. Um, and a group of uh, Cthulhu-ish human worshippers show up or human-esque, I guess, because they seem to have weird eyes or something, But uh, and and do a, a military-style attack on the place. And so a group of scrappy, young, new Black Sight members have to defend the place and keep them from freeing evil whatever. I don't know. It's ambitious. I'll give it that. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's got the it's got this thing of feeling like it's made by people at a comic con that like got together on the weekends and made like a a movie based around an idea that's not a bad idea mm-hmm. but all of the writing is that kind of like writing that only comes from other movies with where people say things like you just don't get it do you and things like that where it's like all of the dialogue are are already cliches from other, like, action movies and stuff. Like, everything was kind of tinnier in that way. I felt like nobody really knew how to write a a character. They just wrote around, like, well, what have I heard people like this? Like, the evil guy. Mm -hmm. Like, the evil guy that's, like, kind of host to one of the Elder Gods. And I'm like, it didn't feel like they were writing him as a character as much as they were like, what have I heard crazy evil people say in prison in other movies? I'll have him say that. And it's like, there's a lot of just leaning really, really hard in cliches. There's a lot of sort of sub-Buffy the Vampire Slayer sword fighting yeah. that takes place in it. Um, <laughs> it was not... Uh, it, it, you know, In this way, it kind of reminded me of that movie that we watched about the post-apocalyptic thing that we watched... Um, where it had the long take at the end, where it was, was a Molly? big fight scene. Molly, yeah. yeah. There was something about this that reminded me of that, where it felt kind of like a bunch of friends that were sci-fi fans getting together and like making their own yeah, no, thing. It, it feels like this is something there was an Indiegogo for, yeah. and, and the, that maybe it was based on like an expansion to the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game or something. And it's, people were like, yeah, we made a campaign, and we were so awesome, we decided we were going to make a movie out of it. It's disappointingly weak, because I, I, when I popped it in, was like, Again, judging from the cover, judging from the synopsis, I was like, how can this fail? And like 20, 30 minutes in, I was like, this has failed. (laughs) It's once again just proving like you could have the same budget. You could have the same level of like just okay action and and, uh, and, uh, uh, just okay direction. But if this thing had had a decent writer, it would have been completely salvageable. Yeah, give me me characters to care about or like or something. Or at least laugh every once in a while, you know? Give me... You know, there's a way to do this kind of movie, and this ain't it. Yeah. Like, I don't... 
especially almost with super low budget films, if you don't have a super super tight script, don't even make it because there's almost no way to salvage it unless your script is just fucking tight as a drum. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it's okay, uh, I guess. I, I love that people are still trying to do sci-fi, uh, like you know, even with smaller budgets and try out different ideas. But this was like definitely a much bigger concept than they ever could have grabbed onto successfully done at this low of a budget of a thing. You know, yeah, they have that one effect shot that they kind of keep cutting back to, mm-hmm. of like the big floating elder god in the sky. Right, and they like, keep keep showing it again and again. They show it early enough where you're like, oh, cool, like. It, I, I, we're going to get to see some things, and it's like, no, we just see that shot over right. and over. Yeah, we, we could afford one shot. <laughs> uh, there's a director's commentary, deleted scenes, behind the scenes, and trailers that come with the Blu-ray of Black Sight. Next up is a, another low-budget uh, uh, sci-fi movie, this one from Poland, called The Man with the Magic Box. I liked this one. Yeah, I kind of did, too. I'm not totally in love with it, but it's one of those movies that you're like, this is a neat idea. And it goes places you really don't expect it to. And it has a pretty tight script. It's basically uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in regards to there's this couple that uh, keep getting drawn back together, even though they're not supposed to remember each other after these sort of like memory wipes, coupled with this sort of Brazil-style bureaucratic world where everybody uh, is defined by their jobs and their place in society and their roles. So there was nothing about it that felt particularly new, but it, but it was that I was comfortable with that. I was fine with it. There's kind of um, a a big shift in, in sort of the third act that kind of changes the the stakes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it, and and again talking about something. It's obviously it has a low budget, mm-hmm. so it tries to find little places to cram like a lot of um, information into tiny details. So for instance. One of the things that I liked was the targeted marketing. Like, we get targeted marketing on websites, and there's a scene where someone's walking down a hallway, and the targeted marketing follows them down the hallway on the wall. Yeah. Like, it follows them. So, people in the future wear things that disguise their face so that they can't get targeted marketing as they're just, like, walking around in the world. Which is a cool idea. And I was like, yeah, that's a really cool little bit of world building that probably didn't cost a lot for them to do that, again, enhances that overall world. The only the only wish I have for this movie, really, was that the quality... I wish Art Sportation had released this on Blue instead of DVD, because yeah. I wanted it to look better. Yeah, um, uh, I, I agree. There's a lot visually going on here. And like you said, it does have the Brazil thing where it's the future and there's cool stuff like that. But there's also the sense of like just everything. It's like the future is viewed from the 19 like 30s or mm. something. You know, it's like there's a bunch of really old stuff. And part of it is because there, there's a big divide between the rich and the poor and the poor yeah. are just scrapping their lives together from relics of the past, which ultimately is kind of like both tonally is both the tone and the plot of this Mm -hmm. film. In this film, we have this radio that someone finds and they don't even really know what it is, but it plays music, but it also plays a signal with this like repeating phrase that comes out of it. And that sort of becomes the centerpiece that kind of like drives the plot of the, of the movie around it. Uh, Is it Czechoslovakian? Polish. Polish. Yeah. 
um, with really solid performances. Yeah. Interesting relationship between the guy who finds the box and his boss at work. He's mm-hmm. a janitor. Uh, his boss, who he's who's clip right off the bat, lets him know I'm attracted to you, but that doesn't matter. If I want to sleep with you, I'm going to. And if I'm not, I'm not. And I don't expect you to say one word to me unless I talk to you first. And he's like, what? But they kind of fall for each other ultimately. And then the character of like the there's a character who is the another janitor there who's just so odd and has this weird reveal late in the movie about him that's almost kind of makes you like well up a little bit. You're like, that's so tragic and sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a, it's an odd movie. It borrows a lot from other films, but then it does new things with those pieces, I think. And uh, I think it's so strengthened by the script being tight by, by it. It points kind of confusing. I definitely, there are points I'm like, I'm not entirely clear what just happened. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, and I feel like you, could, you you largely understand the plot of the thing. It's just, like I said, it, it deals with a kind of time travel. So that it's can good. always get confusing, especially when it's in another language. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I would, uh, I would recommend it. All right. So you're on the same page there. Yeah. I really liked it. It reminded me of something that, um, it reminded me of something that I might have seen at like a Fantastic Fest or a South by, like you know, one of those that that you catch and you never you never really see it again. Um, right. So if you are Very a festival, fan, yeah, the, it's funny. The front of the package I think says like it. The tagline for it is so kind of dopey. It's like a Gilliam experience or something like that. What does it say at the top? A stylish Orwellian Gilliam sci-fi thriller. Yeah, and that's that's like. Not a quote from a critic. That's like what they're putting at the top to try to sell it. Right. It is. It does have a little bit of like that Terry Gilliam feel. Uh, so if you like, if you like foreign sci-fi films, I would, I would check it out. I, I, I hope that it is successful on DVD because I would like to see um, a higher quality version of this movie. I, I would like to watch it in HD. <laughs> in HD, please. It was not the not the best looking. Uh, DVD. But not every upgrade to Blu-ray is worth it. Uh, sometimes they put so little effort into it that you're like, this looks about as good as the VHS. And that's sadly what I have to say about Mill Creek's uh, bare bones but cool retro slipcover uh, re-release of ni- uh, 1984's Sheena, also known as Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. This is one of those rare comic book adaptation movies that I never actually got around to watching because... Why would you? It's Tanya Roberts, who is not known for her strong acting skills um, at all, playing this version, basically female version of Tarzan. Although I've heard that the comic actually got quite good in, like when they've released it in the last 10 years or so. They did some interesting new stuff with it, but I don't know. Um, this is... It was a bomb in theaters. It was nominated for five Golden Raspberry Awards. It does have kind of a cult following, but I mean, really... It's because it played on cable all the time. Yeah, and that's the only reason. I mean, the only reason why I have any affection for movies like Grease 2 is because it was like one of four things playing on HBO yeah. on a given month, and so you watched it 30 times, you know? <laughs> yeah, this one is... Uh, I, I felt like I could at least see the... Some of these are so bad that it's hard to even... They're so misguided from Go, it's hard to even see how they thought it was going to be good. Mm-hmm. This is one where it's like... I felt like the skeleton of something good was there. Like, like okay, it's it was very close, but no cigar across the board. It was not as it's not a it's not a good movie. I don't want to I don't no. want to sell it as a good movie. But um, yeah, it it you know it had the locales, 
it had it has moments of high adventure it has moments of humor that kind of come close to working which is a lot more than i can say about other like blondes in the jungle movies like cave girl or uh, oh, sure. or tarzan the ape man yeah. um so it succeeds over those it's just the ingredients don't add up to something that's actually good. No, Tanya Roberts is not particularly good in it. No, she's bad. Yeah. And like the moments where she's like, so I didn't. I think this was a thing they invented for the movie where she has psychic animal control, like Aquaman, but for creatures on the Serengeti. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like what what is happening? She does this thing. She puts her fingers up to her forehead, and it's like you get expecting to see the Aquaman circular waves coming off yeah. of her and stuff. And there's some really dumb stuff with the animal control thing. Also knowing how clearly obvious it is that the zebra she's riding is a horse that's been fainted. Which <laughs> <laughs> is like, okay. Yeah. Um, and she's like, there's a plot to overthrow the local king, which normally she has nothing to do with because she's like the white girl that was after her parents died, uh, were raised by this mystical tribe out in the jungle. So she's had almost no contact with, with man, but then she ends up sort of teaming up with this journalist who's there to expose the assassination of the local king, uh, that it was his own brother who in fact did it. And, uh, he's on the run. And so the two of them team up together. And of course, you know, it's the, it's a crocodile Dundee-ish time storyline that that sometimes has some humor to it that works, but there's no chemistry between them at all. No. Oh my god. There's no chemistry in anything. The, in any individual element of the movie, there's like <laughs> there's no chemistry. No, no, not even not even slightly. Uh I was gonna say, um interestingly, the person who plays the uh the shaman who kind of raises her is actually played by an actual princess, Princess Elizabeth of Toro, uh, who is uh, from Uganda. Hmm. I thought that was kind of interesting. I did not know that that was a, a real princess. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's. I, I guess the movie didn't like stop it and do like credits on the side. Like, what a babe. People have been dethroned for worse than appearing in <laughs> There's There's no bonus features here, but I mean, it is what it is. It's it's not good, but it's not totally awful. It's watchable. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's as watchable as it ever was on cable in 1984 or whenever the movie came out. So, although this next movie, which is also Mill Creek in their retro Blu ray cover uh, release is definitely, I think, a much better made film. Mm-hmm. It's still somehow outside of the novelty of seeing Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson being the two stars of a movie together is feels like not really a movie. <laughs> and that's Songwriter from 1984 as it's well. It's very shaggy. It's just... It's very much like a kind of a hangout with Willie Nelson and there's a little bit of a plot because that's what movies have, but <laughs> um, it's kind of a plot. It's yeah. just kind of, it's almost like it's trying to be Altman esque, but, and if Alan Rudolph's not a terrible director, yeah. you feel like he might have been able to pull it off. He doesn't. Chris Christopherson plays a huge country star, and Willie Nelson is a. A successful country music star who has a record deal that he has not fulfilled his contractual obligation for. And he feels like, oh, if he could just find something that would spark him, he would be able to either get out of his contract. He would satisfy his contract in whatever way. He meets this female singer. He's like, oh, this is going to be such a good thing because I'm going to hook her up with Chris Christopherson. And then I'll be able to negotiate a deal that will get me out of my contract because I'm going to make so much money Mm -hmm. selling her to this record guy. 
It's um, it, it, that makes it sound like it has a tighter plot than it probably does. It is very right. shaggy. It just kind of goes scene to scene. There's a little bit of music. There's a little bit of hanging out. There's a little bit of a taste of here's what it's like to be a really successful country artist. Here's what it's like to not be. Uh, here's a little bit of like backroom negotiating in the record industry, and here's a whole lot of early '80s Austin. Yeah, uh, lot you know, before it had a skyline. And you had to pause like it. That. It's like, look, it's the old industrial plant. Yeah. Look, it's the, the power station. You know, um, I, I kind of liked it. I mean, I don't dislike it. I don't think I'll ever return to it. I definitely no. found it interesting. But like you said, it's not a grabber. No. Um, it's based uh, – the real selling point for this, and they were really marketing this when it came out, was that it was based on Willie Nelson's actual experiences, mm-hmm. like which he did not go into detail about. <laughs> but like, it's kind of a mishmash of stuff that happened to him all mashed into a story that's not exactly what happened, uh, which is interesting. And Nelson, surprisingly – Really holds his own as an actor in this. Yes. I mean, I know I've seen him in The Red-Headed Stranger, which I thought was pretty good. And what was the other one, the, the other movie? Oh, gosh, he used to do, was wasn't he all in all the Gambler TV movies with yeah. Kenny Rogers? Yeah. I think he had bit roles in those. But he's pretty good in this. Yeah. Um, uh, it just reminds I think, God, it's been so long since I've seen him in anything else. I think the last thing I saw him in was in, uh, what was it, How High? Oh, was yeah. Was that the one where where he's like, the, the, the guy's... Uh, selling drugs to all these different people who are played by famous actors. And one of them is Willie Nelson. And he's like, man, with how much $40, man, when I was a kid, like a joint was 25 cents. Hey man, do you know how much condoms used to cost when I was a kid? I don't know, man. How much? I don't know either. We never used them. <laughs> Very product of its time. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, Chris Christopherson is, is good. He's got a lot, probably arguably a lot more acting experience overall in his career than, than, uh, uh, Willie Nelson does. Although yeah. he'll always be a blades buddy to me. But, um, Leslie Ann Warren, who, uh, is playing the, the young, like, singer in here, she's, like, sparkling, like, in this film, I thought. She's not only, she's young and just ridiculously hot, and they're playing that up quite a bit, but she's a really good singer and has a great stage presence. Kind of makes you wonder why she never pursued anything on the side that I'm aware of. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's lightly comedic. It was an enjoyable. It was an enjoyable time, and I, I don't know sitting down to it that I thought that I would like it because I'm not a country music guy, right? And I kind of I don't really have any interest in Willie Nelson or Chris Christopherson, but the, I, it, it's a kind of gentle, rambling sort of dramedy, uh, and and I, I think I actually, honestly. In this line of films, these, this VHS covers line, yeah. this may actually be one of the best ones. That's probably true. It wasn't a great week for us, I'm afraid. Um, but, yeah, I think people who really like country and really like Willie and Chris are going to be like, wow, how did I not know about this movie? It's really good. But the thing is, they're both super interesting people with mm-hmm. like cool stories in their real lives. And I would have liked it if they just kind of did a more, this is a bigger scope of the story of their, their history. Yeah. Um, because they did some, they both had some crazy shit go down in their lives. Oh, we should, uh, we should also mention if you're a fan of Rip Torn hamming it up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rip Torn hams it up in uh, a huge way. Yeah. Uh, next up is on the basis of sex. I reviewed this, uh, when it came out in the theaters. This, of course, is the narrative film version of a portion of the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who right now is having a moment. She's the notorious RBG. Um, there's a really great, and I will just flat out say much more essential to watch documentary just called RBG that's out there that's really good. This is, 
fine. Very it's, by the numbers. It's very by the numbers. And like I said, it's one of those, like, slice of life. It's just a brief period of time in her life as she's graduating from college, trying to get a job as a lawyer, um, uh, not being successful because everyone had a different excuse for why they, you know, oh, no, we're not sexist. We can't hire a woman because of this perfectly reasonable reason. Um, and then her eventually getting onto her first really important case which was defending a man against sexual discrimination, which yeah. is absolutely true. And I made, but, and regardless, it still made me go, I kind of want to see the more remembered cases that were like, had more resonance later than the one that just caused the first crack in the dam. But Felicity Jones, I think is just fine here. And she's trying so hard. I just don't think the script gives her a hell of a lot to work with. No. Um, I think her husband, Ar- who, played by Army Hammer, who was apparently in real life just a really kind of like thinking way ahead of his time, incredible guy, you know, who was totally a supportive as hell. Well, that was something that the, that the doc very distinctly drew. The doc spends a good portion of time talking about who they were as people and their personalities. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like that came across in this movie at all. But no. they talked about in the doc that he was very gregarious and people loved him and he was super outgoing and extroverted. And she was like quiet workaholic head down at her, at her desk 24 seven. Right. They did have a little bit about her being a bad cook at the very, very beginning. Right. And I was like, Oh, cause they talked about that quite a bit for some reason to the doc, like that she was a terrible cook. It was a funny, it was a funny <laughs> yeah. point, you know, like she's so great at what she does at, that it's almost, and it's really entertaining that she's so horrible at this yeah. one basic life skill. Yeah. There's a little part where she's like, how is it? Are the onions okay? And he's like, they're fine or whatever. And I was like, Oh, that's a little, somebody knew this fact and this, they put this in this movie. Um, I I almost wish it was more like the uh, I almost wish it was just the case and that it did not have the stuff at the beginning with her going to law school or the stuff with him having testicular cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish that because it for the first half of the film it sort of jumps through like the beats of a of a biopic mm-hmm. and then halfway through it just goes and now a case. And everything right. is built towards the case. I feel like it, and it very armchair quarterbacky of me, but I almost feel like the movie would have been better served if it would have just been the case and not necessarily tried to go through their early life together, but just start at the seventies right. and have it pick up from there. Um, it's it is very it is very by the numbers. It is very much like you know it's it, it's, it's got an experienced director behind it, Mimi Leader, yeah, who I felt like did as much as she could with a script that is so by the numbers. Yeah, I think formulaic. it's the script on this. I don't think it's necessarily even the direction. Which I was, think the script is very much just like uh, it, the script. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about, about it's funny to compare this to Black Sight, but <laughs> when somebody writes a movie from their own knowledge of movies, like, well, this is what these movies are like, so I'm going to write from there instead of writing from whatever's coming within. Mm-hmm. I feel like this actually has some similar stuff to Black Sight in that regard, where it's like, the presentation, the stuff that they say, the dialogue feels like it's come from a lifetime of watching other movies about ambitious court cases right. and not from like some place of real honesty. And it's got some moments in it that genuinely work. Mm-hmm. And you can tell they're the moments the writer is super proud of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a moment where she lists off every excuse she's been given to why she's she, they're not going to hire her, which are, you know, make you mad listening to it, but also kind of laugh because they're so absurd. Yeah. Um, there are not, it's not like anything in here is out now bad. 
it just all kind of hangs there like the lesser version of many movies you've seen before. And like I said, there's no reason to watch this over the documentary, which is genuinely involving and interesting and funny. Uh, I mean, that was one of the best documentaries of last year. Yeah. Um, and there's stuff in here that also made me feel uncomfortable in the sense that this is about one of the most powerful, important women of the 20th century. And it focuses a lot on how she couldn't have done anything without the men in her life. You know, there's a lot of like, oh, well, she's saved last minute by the help of her husband or her boss. And you're like, is this really where you want to focus this? Yeah. <laughs> like, it feels like that's a miscalculation is all I'm saying. Um, there is a, a six and a half minute conversation with uh, the director, Mimi Leader, who talks about uh, just her deciding to do this. What, uh, and then the production of it. There's Legacy of Justice for three minutes. Cast and crew talk about Ginsburg's place in history. There's Martin and Ruth, a loving partnership, which is three minutes at a look of their relationship, which indeed at least as far as I can tell from the documentary really was like one of those, you wish your marriage could be as good as theirs was. It was just uh, outside of her terrible cooking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's it. There's not a lot extra here. This isn't a movie that's going to last through the ages. She gets a love scene in the movie. So if you ever, <laughs> if you ever wanted to see Ruth Bader Ginsburg have a love scene, there's one in this film. It is funny. Like, all right. So we all think you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we picture the like, you know, wrinkled, shrunken, but like little fire plug on the Supreme court. But when you see pictures of her when she was young, she was, in fact, smoking hot. Like, yeah. damn. <laughs> so I remember when this was cast, which was before I saw RBG, I was like, I can't picture Felicity Jones as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> but then you're like, oh, wait, she actually she actually was pretty much like a head turner when she was young. So um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg does have a, a really nice little cameo at the, the real uh, Ruth at the end of the movie that I admit I was like, okay. That was that this needed that. And I'm glad they decided to do that. But um, next up, we have Archer season nine, also known as Archer Danger Island, which uh, shows on FXX. This uh, the 10th season is getting ready to start before too long where they're going into space. I'll admit much more interested in them parodying Alien than I'm not sure what they're parodying here. feels like they're parodying movies from the 30s. It's like, yeah, it's like a general adventure movie vibe. The the previous two seasons were the same way. It's like, why are you parodying movies that are like most people have never seen, that are not resonant at all? And this one especially was like, all right, so he's like, um, it takes place in 1938. Because the deal is, if you haven't been watching Archer, he was a super spy along with other super spies, although it's incredible they're not all dead because none of them are particularly great at their jobs um, and they're very poorly funded. And he gets, I forget which season, he got went into a coma. And so for two or three seasons now, I've just been him, like all the char- actors playing different characters in these fantasy worlds that are his dreams that he's having while he's in a coma. No clue when they're going to, or if they'll ever decide to break out of that. But uh, in this particular one, he's in 1938. Uh, he is a uh, pilot of a seaplane on an island that's run by uh, his mother. And... Um, there's a, a talking parrot that everyone that is one of the funnier jokes during the whole thing. Everyone keeps freaking out because the parrot is not just talk. He can have a regular conversation and yeah. what have you. He's not just mimic uh, mimicking people. Uh, there is a princess of the island that uh, is a uh, oh my god I'm forgetting her name. Do you remember the the, the, the character's name? No, I do not. Uh, the one that's the on and off love interest throughout the whole show. I apologize. Yeah. Um, there's uh, a rich girl that comes in who is um, 
just a mess and uh she ends up working as a hooker at the hotel on the island and then getting involved in all these mishmash there's a indiana jones jones-ish type plot that kicks off in the last third and this is just kind of all over the place it's one of those i really did not want to continue watching it when i first started it i was like i'm not liking this particular plot at all but as it went along by the time i got to the halfway point i was into it and by the end, I admit, I, I was kind of sold by it. It was like, okay, that, that ended up being really fun. All the Indiana Jones stuff, like the last three or four episodes are quite good. But it ends like on a sort of like not end. It ends like cliffhanger and like the main character dies and suddenly he wakes up in space. And it's like, oh, well, that's the next season. Uh, it's like, well, I kind of would have liked if you had finished the story that <laughs> you spent the entire season telling, even if it is just a dream. I mean, it's only eight episodes, and they're what, like 20 minutes a piece, maybe? Yeah, they're about 20 minutes a piece. So, I mean, you're not talking about wasting a huge amount of time watching this. And honestly, Archer is one of those shows, now that it's doing the single plot seasons like this, that I really say it's much better watched in one sitting than it is watching it once a week or whatever. You know, uh, it's it's more enjoyable taking in a lump. Uh, marathoning it, but I just, it's just, I know people are like, wow, God, they're still making Archer. Yeah. It's never been bad, but it's running out of steam. You know, uh, now they do always do interesting stuff with the bonus features. And here, uh, there is a few things here. There's a, a 13 and a half minute inside look making Archer with Amber Nash, who plays Pam, uh, goes to the production, uh, in Atlanta in a four-part behind-the-scenes look with uh, Lucky Yates, who plays Crackers the Parrot here, uh, in a black leotard with a Crackers doll, and like, and they act as if the whole time he's going to be like taken out in CG later, which is where he's wearing this black leotard, and of course they don't. Um, and it just interviews all the people behind the scenes, which is kind of cute. Uh, there's a, a quite, I thought, funny thing that was made for Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, three and a half minutes of Crackers, Basically showing off, changing into a, a bunch of different cosplay outfits of very recognizable characters that were being previewed in movies at, at Comic-Con that year. So uh, it's it's okay. I mean, if you like I said, if you're a big Archer fan, you're a completist, it's far from the strongest season. But it's it's still it's still holding in there. Uh, like I said, I am genuinely excited for the the next season, which which looks right off the bat. It's straight up. It's there on the Nostromo. You know, I'm like, okay, that I want to see. Yeah. But, yeah, they spent way too much time with movies that nobody remembers anymore. It just didn't click with me. This is really the first concerted effort I've ever given into watching Archer, and it didn't really click with me. It felt like all the characters hated each other. Well, they, like, they, they spent a lot of time just screaming at each other. The earlier seasons are much better, for sure, of yeah. this show. Like, the first four seasons are just so solid and funny. Uh, and then after that, it just kind of feels like we're just kind of going through the motions. We're recycling a, a lot of the same gags and, you know. Uh Moving on to our, by contract, we have to talk about one, at least one totally bizarre and all but forgotten Giallo film on a John and Chris show. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're talking about, oh my God, what is this called? The Iguana the with the Tongue Iguana of Fire. With the Tongue of Fire. Um, this is odd in that, A, it's so terrible, I don't know why anyone would ever want to re-release it other than the fact that it reaches a level of terrible that you're kind of like, hey, this is a, this is kind of enjoyable. Chris, there's level. a line in this movie where a character says... Hey, don't forget your glasses. You know you can't hear without them. I know. (laughs) Well, it's known because it was the only Giallo ever to take place in in Ireland, which makes there's absolutely no reason for whatsoever, as near as I can tell. 
for that to be the case here. And no. all the actors, which is always with Italian films, they would film with whatever actors they thought looked right for the part, regardless of what language they spoke, which is why every Italian movie from like a whole gi- giant period is AD all entirely ADR, no matter which version of it you watch, whether yeah. it's in Italian or whatever, because there'd be people speaking four different languages on set. And this is the case here as well. Uh, and the ADR for these characters, I watched the English version. Now with these, I just go fuck it. I'm just watching the English version. The Italian yeah. version's just as much ADR. Yeah. Um, I just <laughs> really weird mix of people trying to do an Irish accent of people occasionally doing an Irish accent and some people just saying, fuck it, I'm not going to do that. They're that weird. I don't, I, I would love to talk to a linguistics person also, because there's that weird thing that they do that a lot of the Italian dubbed films do where the accents are not quite British and not quite American, where they sort of thought they didn't talk like this. Right. And it's like, that's not really, I don't know what accent that's supposed to be. Um, this one is about a, uh, yeah, I want to hear you describe this. Plot. So there's Swiss <laughs> ambassadors staying in Ireland and people associated with this family that's staying at the Swiss embassy. They're, um, killed off by getting acid thrown in their face and then their throats cut. Mm-hmm. And it has something to do with someone that's involved with the embassy. And then it's kind of a, um, not particularly thrilling murder mystery to get down to who is actually throwing acid at people and slicing their throats. Uh, it has some horribly uncomfortable underage nudity in it. Yes. Um, I, this is what past that point in Giallo where suddenly they all were just lousy with like girls that are supposed to be in high school who are naked. Yeah. Mm. Um, it has some laughable gore effects. Oh my god, so bad! And a, and a slew of just completely uninteresting characters doing uninteresting things. <laughs> um, there's little odd moments that kind of like wake you up. Like um, there's a couple scenes where the grandmother character is like speaking directly to the camera, mm-hmm. uh, and and again there's the line about "Don't forget your glasses." You know, you can't hear without them. Um, it's it's not my favorite movie. It's it's uh, we've watched a lot of these arrow like obscure giallos, and this is probably the worst one we've seen. You saw life. it in like a party atmosphere, and I did not. I saw it by myself. Mm-hmm. Which, no, no, I watched this by myself. Oh, I thought you said okay. I thought you saw this with like other people. No, no. Uh, I wish I had. It would have been more fun to watch over drinks and making fun of it the whole oh. time because it's not a fun movie at all. Um, and, and you know the title which is apropos of nothing in the film, uh, is only there because The Bird with the Crystal Plumage by Argento had come out and made a huge amount of money. In fact, was the first Giallo film to actually be successful in Italy. So successful that it had ended up being widely released across the world and did really well everywhere and launched the career of, of uh, Dario Argento, amongst others. So there's a ton of Giallo films that have to have like a name like The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, the iguana with the tongue of fire. There's a lot the of The girl with the dragon tattoo. No, not the same thing. Not the same thing. But one thing that made me laugh is this credits uh, it, that it's based on a novel, and it was not. They just made that up to make it feel like maybe it had more gravitas mm. if it had been based upon a novel. <laughs> That's insane. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. That's just such a weird thing to do. Yeah, this is only for the most hardcore of Giallo completists. There's an audio commentary that has to quote Giallo connoisseurs, Adrian J. Smith and David Flint. And apparently it's the way to watch this movie because they spend the whole movie 
essentially making fun of it and and having a great time at its expense, which sounds like that would have been a lot more fun. When I went to log this on Letterboxd, I was very surprised at the number of three and a half to five star reviews. The, the, the audience for this really, really enjoys it much more than I could have ever imagined. Yeah. Uh, I think some people are just fans of Giallo and are willing to cast a wide net on their love of it. Yeah. But, uh, but you got to have a pretty wide net. I mean, I'm a Giallo fan, and I have some ones I couldn't def- that I really like that I can't defend. But I'm like, oh, it's just so weird and awesome and biz- like you know, you just if you like all these elements, it puts it together in a fun way, even if it doesn't make any sense. None of that is true here. Not even like <laughs> particularly well shot in regards to like, no. not like a great looking movie either. Uh, there's. Um, uh, a couple different little bonus features here about various elements and interviews with people who made it. But I mean, like I said, this is, I, I I'm almost tempted to go back and watch it with the commentary. Cause it's just one of those pointless movies that might be fun to listen to people who are bigger experts on Giallo than me actually openly make fun of it the whole time. I watched a little bit of the special feature called the red queen of hearts with Dagmar Lassender. Um, was mostly her talking about giving context for, being called on to do nude scenes so often in movies like these. Mm -hmm. Um, Just her perspective as an actress at the time. It it was uh, de rigueur for for that latter period of of that period of Giallo. I mean, it hadn't even really gotten to the point where it was straight up sexploitation yet. Like later on, like in the mid to late 70s, some of the Giallo coming out was like, okay, this is just softcore porn with like the occasional black gloved like knife throat slashing going on, yeah. you know, um, we're not quite there yet, but still there's a startling amount of nudity. Uh, next up is a direct to DVD movie matriarch, man. The thing about this is it's a decent idea. It's got some decent performances, but it's so low budget and it so doesn't really have a, anything interesting to do at the end that no. it builds up some kind of neat, world building for this bizarre little horror situation and then doesn't really do anything interesting with it at all. No, it's, um, it's, it's, <laughs> what is it, John? Oh, it's cold mashed potatoes. It's, <laughs> it's cinematic cold mashed, but it's, you know, it's, it, we have watched far worse horror films and then some of them are just like fine but don't even like this movie doesn't do anything like it doesn't it's it doesn't do anything yeah it has an okay story about this couple they break down on the side of the road and the wife is pregnant and they meet weird country people in Scotland or Ireland right. i think it's scotland that they're in in this movie um yeah, so scotland yeah, yeah so they meet some weird uh, scottish country bumpkins very clearly, you're like, this is not going to be a good situation for this pregnant lady because this crazy old lady that takes them in is basically going to, like, make that baby hers and hold them prisoner and, like, all that kind of stuff. And so it plays out in a very familiar way. <coughs> and then it never really, like, has anything new to offer or new to say. It doesn't push anything to an extreme even of horror it's super duper middle of the road, but it's competent across the board, which is weird because typically like we see stuff that's like borderline incompetent. Yeah. And this is like from a construction standpoint, absolutely competent performances and scenes and everything. It just, that's all it is. Go anywhere. Yeah. It's, it doesn't have anything super new to offer us. Um, the setup, 
where especially an element of it where there's a little girl that's there yeah. that they're like, oh my god, that they immediately realize that's that girl that went missing in this area. That's that girl. They must have abducted her. That they do some things that should play out to be much more interesting than they do, and then it just is such a wah wah of a you've seen this a thousand. Well, you've heard this in a billion like ghost like yeah. ghost stories around the campfire type of way. Like ah yawn. I mean, there's like I said, even though the woman who plays the, the the matriarch, the titular matriarch, is great and she's creepy. Um, there's a lot of stuff going into this, that despite the obvious low budgetness of how it was shot, I'm it was giving me hope. Hey, I feel like they might be onto something here. They're not. <laughs> now it also kind of felt at times like maybe it was a horror movie made by someone who didn't like horror movies. Mm. Um, it had that kind of reservation to it, where it was I was unsure whether the filmmakers actually even enjoyed the genre in which they were playing. Yeah, because it did feel so reserved. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I just don't know what there is to say about this other than it's just forgettable. Although I would I wouldn't write off a movie by this director if he was to do something else. You know, I'd go like, yeah, it was, like you said, a competent job. I could see if he had a bigger budget and a more interesting script, might be able to do something really interesting. But this was not interesting at all. Our last movie, I would say, is definitely interesting. And that is Terra for Mars. Now, you anime fans who might or might not be out there may be familiar with, uh, or anime, I say manga fans out there may be familiar with the manga series of the same name. I, of course, because you know me, had no, never ever heard of this before. I was like, I get this in the, from air. I'm like, great. What the fuck is this? Yeah, because uh, it sounds like an as- asylum version of like Transformers. Right. You know, like, oh, Terraformers. And then it's like, oh, no, it's director Takashi Miike. And immediately I go, Okay, uh, you have my attention. What's Mike up to this time? Well, Chris, here's what he's up to. <laughs> There's a group of Suicide Squad-like ex-cons that are taken to space because Mars has been made habitable through a series of algae, and they've run experiments to see if it can sustain life by p- putting cockroaches there. It can. The cockroach population's out of control. So we're going to send these ex-cons up to clean up the cockroaches because they're all kind of expendable anyways. Right. So they send them up to space space and they discover that the cockroaches have mutated to become like eight foot tall muscle bound humanoid cockroaches <laughs> yeah. but wait there's more oh my god wait for the next part because you thought you already wanted to see this listen up the ex-cons that were sent on the mission all went under rigorous medical procedures thinking that they were prepping themselves for life on Mars when in actuality they were being infused with bug DNA so that they could tap into the powers of various insects to fight the giant cockroach that now rule Mars. I loved the shit out of this movie. I did, too! <laughs> I was like, this is so not something I would have separately sought out, you know, outside yeah. of Mike being involved, which, like, yeah. you know, I've seen a lot of different genre stuff from Mike. This is so bug nuts. Yeah. No pun intended. Like, it's just, like, these guys, they do the thing where they're like, they turn physically, like, look kind of like whatever bug in the screen will freeze when they first do and give yeah. the description of what the bug is that they're infused with and what it's, like, known for. It's crazy shit that it does. And getting these huge fights, and it's super gory. Yeah. You know, like, these guys get, I mean, because there's a bunch of them, so they're just getting ripped apart by giant, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger cockroaches. And then, like, they they have the thing, because like, they have to inject themselves to, to get the bug powers, and it wears off after a while. And they're like, don't inject yourselves a bunch. It's really dangerous. So, of course, eventually, they're going to inject themselves a bunch and become super mega-powered. And then there's, like, a late-in-the-movie 
just fucking insane plot twist. <laughs> it's like, what? It's just so weird that you just start laughing and go, okay, that was the, the I, I should have expected the movie was going to do something that unexpected and insane, and I'm really happy that it did. I'm not sure it made any sense, but honestly, who gives a fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I really I really did like this one. <laughs> I didn't know much going into it. I did watch the trailer and went, okay, this looks weird. Um, and yeah, and then when the movie started going, it was like, it, you know... I had not seen anything like it. Nope. <laughs> nope. Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, I mean, it's... Mike working sort of in his... Um, kind of in his, like, mainstream blockbuster f- phase. Okay, he can he can wear so many different hats. Yeah. And the only time I've seen him wear a hat similar to this one was when he did Great Yokai War. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of that same kind of, like, heightened fantasy... Um, you know, little heavy special effects. See, I'm not seeing that one now. I have to watch that. Yeah, one. it's like him doing Neverending Story. Oh, okay. it's sort of like if he did Neverending Story. Is awesome, great yokai. We'll seek like. that out then. Um, it's all the yokai, the yokai monsters, the, all the demons and spirits and stuff. Oh, and okay. These bad guys are like uh, going to destroy them all through this action that they're doing, and this little kid is enlisted to like help all the yokai monsters like against these bad guys. The Recognizable actress in it is the one that plays uh, Gogo Yubari from. Kimba. Oh right, she's yeah, like yeah. the main villain. Okay. Anyways, um, but it's him working in that kind of mode, which is like this like crowd pleasing blockbuster mode. So when he brings his own off kilter sensibilities to this sort of like blockbuster filmmaking, you you get stuff that's really <laughs> it's really different. This is yeah. There's you'll never. I mean, it's it's like you can say it's like if the Power Rangers were the Suicide Squad times shit you never could have seen coming because it's Takashi Miike. I don't know what to do. <laughs> if you like Joe's Apartment and Sectars, then this is the movie for you. <laughs> I mean, it's not even like I'd say you have to like any other thing <laughs> other than just a movie that's so non-stop moving and in- completely insane. Like, it's, it is. It's just insane. I have no other way to describe it. Like, if you like movies that are, like, cult, very fast-moving, totally inexplicable how it got paid for, (laughs) like, sci-fi, horror, action, superhero movies, this might be for you. I have heard that the manga positions the cockroaches to basically be um, satirical black people. Really, um, and I will say I'm that glad if that's, we did not see that. I here. was going to say I, I will say that if that's a concern, the film doesn't touch that at all. No, and I have seen panels from the comic where the the cockroaches wear gold chains and play basketball and oh, crap Jesus. like that. That is completely sidestepped for the Terraformers movie. It's yeah, not it's not even an ingredient. You never get the. There's not enough about them that make you think that they're supposed to be an analog for anything. Yeah. So somebody had shared some panels with me after I was like praising it and how much I love the movie. They were like, "Oh, really? Look at this!" And I'm like, "Well, that wasn't in the movie, so right. I still love the movie." All I can judge is by the yeah. movie that Mike must have gone. No, we're absolutely not fucking doing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, there. This is Arrow putting this out. So there is a. Uh, hour and a half piece of making up <laughs> like this movie got another movie basically made about it <laughs> that that's insane to me that that's a thing but yeah uh i might actually go back and watch it at some point because it's just like after you're done with this movie you can't watch anything else after it you have to put it down and go outside into the sunshine or something it's and just- a great movie to introduce to other people too to be like oh 
I'm going to put this on for you. <laughs> See what happens. Yeah. Uh, there's cast interviews, all in Japanese with English subtitles. There's uh, five minutes of outtakes, and then the teasers, trailers, and a still gallery. Yeah, this is, I, I think we both got, it's so weird, but this is the pick of the week, right? Yeah, Am I wrong? Oh, definitely. There's no, no question. Is, it's by far the most entertaining uh, l- lunatic thing in the whole pile, and most satisfying, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was very strangely sad. I can't wait to show this to my friend Matt Frank, who draws Godzilla. Yeah. He's going to, I don't know if he even knows about this, and he is going to lose his fucking mind over it. <laughs> anyway, that is it for Digital Noise. We'll be back in actually just about another week because Aaron is finally able to start uh, doing reviews again. He has, um, Finally finished moving into his brand new, brand spanking new house. And uh, he, he came to me and said, I'm ready. Let's do some, give me some movies. So I sent him off several days ago with a big stack, <laughs> which is why I don't have anything to hand off to you this week. Oh, man. Thanks to John. That's like, okay. I've got, because I've got uh, Dallas Fan Expo this, this coming weekend. Oh, nice. Um, first weekend of May. I'll be um, moderating all of the comic book content at that show. So if you come and watch a sketch duel or you see a comic book panel, Short of like Jim Lee or John Byrne, some of like the A plus plus names, um, I'll be moderating most of the comics content. And then the following weekend, I'll be in Houston at Comic Palooza, not moderating, but walking around. So if you see me, say hi. Okay, will you say the dates of those just because people you don't? Oh know. gosh, first week in May and second week in May, and I okay. don't have there you the go. dates in front. 2019. Of me. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, John. And like I said, I'll talk to you guys in another week.